0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time to look into your word. Father, we ask that not a single one of us would remain unchanged by coming into contact with your word. So, Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work to change us, to conform us more into the image of Christ. And, Father, today we ask that through this song, Deuteronomy 32, your name might be lifted high, that you might be seen as glorious and just and right. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. At this point, you'll remember that Moses has already basically finished up his address to the people of Israel. He is about to pass away. He is about to die. And these are his last words to the people of Israel before they cross the Jordan and go into the land of Canaan, and Deuteronomy, as we've seen, is structured after sort of one of those ancient Near Eastern covenants, and we've walked through the prologue, we've walked through the uh, historical prologue where uh, God reminds the people of everything that he's done for them. We've looked at the general exhortations, the general stipulations, in which Deuteronomy says that we ought to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our might, and that is the, the loyalty that we are to give the Lord. And we see how that loyal love gets played out in the specific stipulations of chapters 12 through 26. Um, and then we came to the curses and the blessings. What could they expect to experience if they obeyed or disobeyed the very specific stipulations of the covenant? And then, as any good preacher hopefully does, at the end of his address, Moses calls the people to make a commitment. He says that I have set before you life and death, cursing and blessing, choose life. And so he calls them to obedience. And then what we looked at last week uh, were some concluding details to the book of Deuteronomy. So now that Moses' address to the people of Israel is done, and he's about to go away to Mount Nebo and, and die, the Lord still has a task for him to do. And we looked last week that there was the, the commissioning of Joshua. So the, the, uh, he passed off the reins to Joshua. And he commissioned Joshua before all the people of Israel publicly. And then we saw that then there was a sort of a private powwow between the Lord and Joshua and Moses. Joshua was commissioned to be strong and to take the people into the land. But Moses was commissioned to write a song And that's the song that we're going to be looking at today. But the song, if you remember, was specifically for a witness. And it was a witness to the Lord's righteousness and to the people's sinfulness because he knew that they were going to turn away from him. He knew that the heart of man is wicked and rebellious and that without his work, they would turn away from him. And so this song anticipates... Israel's future disobedience. And it says, God is right. Mankind has rebelled. And what we're going to see is once Israel disobeys the Lord, disobeys the stipulations of the covenant, what would they receive? Well, they would receive all of those covenant curses. And the temptation for the Israelites would be, God is mistreating us. God is treating us unfairly. right?" But we know that those curses came upon them specifically because they disobeyed the covenant. And so this song was to be taught to the Israelites and passed down generation after generation after generation (laughs) so that when those covenant curses finally came upon the people of Israel, they couldn't say God is being unjust, God is being unfaithful, God is being mean to me. They would have a witness against them. So he is giving this beforehand to them. So with that, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is a very difficult uh, passage of Scripture. It has a lot of interpretive uh, decisions that you have to make, and you also have a lot of textual decisions uh, that you have to make. Uh, Every once in a while, I'll bring these up. I I don't want to go down too many rabbit trails, but some of them are significant. So uh, we will address those as we go forward. But it starts off in verses 1 to 3 with a call to attend. A call to attend to the song. Uh, It's a call to pay attention to to what's going to follow. And we read in verses 1 through 3, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass, And like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. So we see in this verse one that he is calling the heavens and the earth to bear witness to what is about to be said. So we've said um, that these ancient covenants would often have a list of witnesses to the covenant document. And in those ancient secular kind of uh, or, or paganistic contexts, the witnesses would be sort of their gods and goddesses. But here, God himself is the witness and and they use the heavens and the earth to uh, be the witnesses here rather than the gods and the goddesses of pantheons. But this is a solemn moment. The whole creation is watching this. It's as if the whole earth is hearing Moses calling them to this song. They are to be the witnesses of it. And then in verse 2, we see a prayer. Right, may my teaching drop as the rain. So we have Moses' prayer, his hope that uh, his hope of the effect that this song will have. And what is this? I notice what is going on here. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, showers upon the herb. What you'll notice throughout this uh, chapter is that there is a lot of metaphor. Uh, and it will be different metaphors all throughout, but what do metaphors do? They, they bring us, they, they in a way stir up our affections in ways that teaching doesn't, and there is a proper place for that. It calls us to imagine it and experience it, and so what's going on here? What, what is rain and dew and gentle rain and showers? Well, it's that which produces the flourishing. Right? You need the rain in order for the crops to grow. You need the rain for the grass and the herbs and the fields to grow. And so what is Moses praying will have this effect? What is it that will cause this flourishing in the people? It's the teaching. May my teaching do this. And so he is hoping that this teaching, and the teaching is most prominently the stuff in the song, but also by extension, Deuteronomy, And then if we wanted to apply that as well, we could say it applies to the whole of Scripture. But I think what Moses is primarily dealing with is uh, what is going on in the song. Now, what hope would Moses have that his teaching would have this effect upon them? What hope? Well, you'll notice in verse 3, it says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord ascribe greatness to our God. It's because his teaching is proclaiming the name of the Lord, it's because his teaching is ascribing greatness to God. It's because his teaching, the content of that is the glory of God. And so any teaching that magnifies the Lord and shows his greatness is like the water that gives life and growth to the fields. And so this is his prayer. And this ought to be our prayer that the Lord's word that in that the contents of this song would have this effect effect upon us. As we hear the glory of the Lord, as we think through how great God is, how just he is, and also how sinful and terrible we are, it ought to be something that causes us to grow and to flourish in the Lord. And so keep that in your mind and even pray that for yourself as we go through the rest of the contents of the song. So that is sort of his introduction, his call to attention, a call to attend to the listening or or to the teaching of The song. And then what he'll do in verses four to six is he'll have his main thesis. Some of you have written uh, papers in in high school or in college, and you have research papers. And what you do is the first thing you do is, well, you have an introduction, but then you put forward what? Your thesis statement. And then what is the purpose of the body of the paper? It's to demonstrate that your thesis is true, right? So you're going to list your evidences, uh, and then hopefully at the conclusion, you'll tie it all together. We have something similar here where Moses is going, or or Moses and God himself really through Moses is, is going to be putting forth his main thesis in verses four to six. And then the rest of it is he's going to be giving evidence that this is true. So let's read verses four to six. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. So that's the statement of the attributes of God. This is who God is. But now in contrast to that, we're going to see what Israel was. And really, you can see all of this in us as well. right? Israel, the people of Israel were humans just like us. They have the same nature as us. And so while these primarily are dealing with Israel and them rebelling against God in terms of the, uh, the covenant, we do the exact same thing. And so this is a statement of us as well. But verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You'll notice that Jesus picks that up in the Gospels and applies that to the generation of the Israelites of his day. And then he goes on in verse 6, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? I'll stop it right there for a second. 5 and the first part of 6 really is the Lord's accusation against the people of Israel. Remember, this is a witness to God's righteousness. He is dealing righteously with his people. And so in this part, he is giving his accusation of the people. This is how they have acted, corruptly, crooked. They're blemished, twisted, foolish, senseless. And verse six, you'll notice that it has two questions. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you? Who made you and established you? And what we have here are these two questions. What they do is they expose the idiocy and the insanity of rebellion against God. It makes no sense. It goes against all reason. Right? I was just thinking, um, you know, a painting does not rebel against the painter, the artist, right? A character in a novel does not rebel against uh, the author, right? legos like a lego tower doesn't rebel against uh the kid who makes it it might rebel against the the parent who steps on the legos later um but not the kid right it's against reason that the thing made would rebel against the thing or the one who made it and yet that's what sin is it's a rebellion against the one who created us and not only that it's not just in in cold terms right the one who made us but what does it say is he not your father who created you, who made you, who established you. Sin goes against all reason because how does he characterize the people? Verse six, foolish, senseless. It goes against reason to rebel against your father. Now what I want to do is go back up real quick to verse four before we move on. What name is God called by here, the rock. Now, this is going to be really significant. So first off, it occurs nine times, this word occurs nine times in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Um, Five times, it's explicitly referring to God. And then there's a couple times where it's making reference to God, but not necessarily explicitly. And then uh, one time, I don't know if I did my math right there. Uh, but anyways, one of the times it's referring to false gods. It's, um, but the, the rock. So first off, we can think of the rock. This is a great metaphor. It describes security, strength, stability. God is not subject to change. And that's really significant because God was the same when he gave the covenant. And God is the same when he puts the covenant curses upon Israel. Right? He hasn't changed. So who has changed? It's mankind that has changed. In this word, it's not like a little uh, pebble or a stone, but rather the way it's kind of described and also within the context of where Israel has come from, this rock is most likely the clefts of a mountain. You remember where David hid uh, while he was fleeing from Saul? He would often go into the hill country and he would hide in in the caves. Um, He would be able to hide in the clefts of a rock or the clefts of the mountain. And so this is who God is, but at the same time, why does Moses here use a metaphor? It's not, like in one sense, the metaphor can give us an idea about what God is like and who God is, but I read an interesting article um, this week. I'll just give you the, the little gold nugget from this, but he was describing this metaphor, the rock. It's not just a description of God, but it's an invitation to experience the rock for yourself. Instead of imagining the rock over there and the clefts of the mountain over there and just kind of analyzing what is God and who is God, using the metaphor in this song invites you to say, is God my rock? Is he the one that I flee to? Is he the one that I hide in? Is he the one that I have security in? And so that's the same for Israel here. Because what we'll see, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but what we'll see is that this song is an accusation against Israel for their faithlessness. But it is also an invitation to those who are open to faith and trust in this rock. And we'll see that at the end. But he is described as the rock. And throughout this psalm, we're going to see more and more Attributes of God throughout here. This song describes God as glorious. Just look at the, the contents here perfect, justice, faithfulness, without iniquity, right? He's not sinful like we are. He's just and upright. He's our Father. He created, He made, He established. There's so many statements about who God is. So, this is his main thesis. God says, I am right. Israel, you have acted rebellious against me. And now, just like a good research paper would do, although this is much more poetic and and enjoyable, he's going to go from there and tell us how we can know that Israel did do this and that he is right. And so he's going to list the evidence in verses 7 through 18. The evidence in verses 7 through 18. And he starts off in verse 7 by saying, Remember the days of old. It's a call for them to remember what God has done. Because his actions are going to demonstrate his justice. His actions are going to demonstrate his goodness. His actions are going to demonstrate his loving kindness. He says, Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. There's the uh, assumption that the fathers and the elders would be passing on from generation to generation the teaching of what God had, has done. We ought to be doing the same. So he calls them to remember, and he's going to call them to remember a couple of things. First off, God's goodness. God's goodness. And we see this from verse 8 all the way to verse 14. And God's goodness is demonstrated in two ways. So we're kind of doing multiple sub-points here, but God's goodness is demonstrated in two ways. The first one is that Israel was unique to God, unique to the Lord. He made them, he elected them, he chose them. They were unique to him. So read with me verses 8 through 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So verse 8 really looks back to Genesis 10 through 12. In Genesis 10, God gives uh, there the table of nations. It's what all the nations did after they were scattered. And then in chapter 11, he goes into the Tower of Babel, right? And this was when mankind rebelled and it was at their peak at the Tower of Babel, and God came down and he scattered them, and that's how those nations were formed. And then immediately afterwards, right, in the second part of chapter 11 of Genesis, what, is he, what do we have? Well, we have a genealogy that leads to whom? To Abraham. And so we see God saying, here are the nations, they rebel, I'm scattering them, but now I'm working through this one man and his family. And so we have that as our background here. Now, and and so that's what he's talking about here in verse 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people. Now, um, some of you will have a different translation here. According to the number of the sons of God. This is one of those textual issues that we have to touch on briefly. I won't go too far into this, but some of your translations will say the sons of Israel. And that changes a little bit about how you read this. Um, Basically, my assessment of this is that uh, sons of God is the best representation of what's here. Uh, You have the oldest manuscripts saying sons of God, whereas the more modern but more numerous manuscripts have sons of Israel. And I think there's reasons for that. And if you want to learn more about that, shoot me an email, or talk to me afterwards. Uh, for for my money, we're going to go with the sons of God. But then we have to ask, well, what does that mean? okay? And, and what does that have to do with verses 8 and 9? And to understand that, the word sons of God, here it's benay Elohim, it shows up throughout the Old Testament, and it almost always refers to heavenly beings. It almost always refers to... Uh, the angelic host. Uh, so it was the sons of God who were rejoicing at the creation of the worlds there in Job. Um, you have the sons of God in uh, Genesis 6, which there's another um, question there as well. But then you look at places outside of the Bible as well, uh, in the languages and the cultures surrounding Israel, and they have a very similar term, and it refers to these kind of uh, heavenly beings as well. Um, all that to say, I think that's what is being referred to here, is the the angelic hosts, the angelic beings, could be good, could be bad angels. Um, okay, but now if we say that, let's go back through verse 8 and see what it's talking about them. Okay, so when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So what this If everything we've said up to this point is true, then what this describes is a situation where God scattered the people at Babel and he said to his heavenly beings, his angelic hosts, he says, you're over that country, you're over that nation, you're over this group, you're over this group. Okay, And that may sound a little weird to you until you think through Daniel, the book of Daniel a little bit there in chapter 10. You do have... uh, Angelic beings described as the prince of Greece or the prince of Persia or uh, Michael is described as uh, Israel's prince. Okay? And then if you go forward to Ephesians, um, Paul calls them rulers and authorities, dominions and all of that. And what those terms signify, and there it's pretty clear that he's referring to angelic beings, that they have some kind of authority, some kind of dominion, some kind of domain that they're over. And so it shouldn't surprise us, and it's not our place to go and say, I think um, America has this angel, Trump has this angel, uh, Biden has that angel. Or it, right, We're not called to discern any of that. It, what we can recognize is that there are angelic um, uh, influences in national uh, dynamics and all of that. Okay, so we have this concept where God is giving the nations over at Babel, giving the nations over to the divine or the angelic, the heavenly beings. And then notice how, if that understanding is correct, notice then how that demonstrates the uniqueness of Israel. He says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So he says, I may have put the uh, dominion or authority uh, over the the nations to these other um, angelic beings, my other creations, But Israel, I interact with them directly. I am over them directly. And so what we're seeing is God says, Israel, you were unique to me. I specifically chose you. I am interacting directly with you. And so this is this first demonstration of God's goodness. Israel is unique to God. And then we see that this uniqueness is demonstrated further in verses 10 through 14. And here, God's goodness is also demonstrated in his parental love and care. Uh, Because what we're going to see is a very nurturing um, description of God. So let's read 10 through 14. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and... Milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats with the very finest of the wheat, and you drink foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. We see just a a gentle, loving picture of the Lord. A few things here. First, go up to verses 10 and 11. This is really neat. So if you have the ESV there, um, when it says, he found him in a desert land in the and in the howling waste of the wilderness. That waste there um, is the the same word back in Genesis one two that describes the earth as being formless and void. Okay, so this is there. And then if you jump to eleven, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, that word flutters is the same word again in Genesis one two of the spirit hovering over the formless and the void in the waters of, of the uh, before the, the creation there. And so this is really cool because what we've got is the creation of Israel being described in terms of a, sort of a, a, a new creation. where Just like God had created the heavens and the earth, now he's specifically creating Israel. He's saying, you were nothing. You were nothing. I formed you. I made you. It was a special act of creation. Uh, But here, you know, they're already created. But it's as if he's making a new creation with them, a new people to be his. They were nothing. He brought them out of nothing. And now they are to be his. And then what I want you to notice as well is all the motherly metaphors. Now, what we're saying, what we're not saying is God our mother or something like that. Okay, but the Bible does describe in metaphors uh, a God. And so it never calls him a mother. We saw earlier that he's described as your father. And throughout the Bible, he's always described with masculine pronouns and all of that. And yet there are uh, these sort of motherly metaphors. And so it's not that God is a mother, but it evokes that tender, affectionate, nurturing care of a mother. And that's how tenderly God cared for Israel. Notice uh, just some of these very tender metaphors. He found him, encircled him, cared for him, kept him, caught him, bore him, guided him, made him ride, he ate the produce, and then this one. In verse 13, he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. And that's where we'll uh, go to next is this description here in verse 13. So it says that he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock. Now, if you think about it, uh, honey and oil don't usually come from rocks, right? So there's a couple things that are going on here. I think um, the first one is there's a you know you're imagining a picture and you're 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 seeing a rock and all of a sudden oil is coming out of it or honey is coming out of it, and what I think it's pointing to is that God was providing abundance for them out of waste places, out of unsuspecting places. And and you can just imagine that throughout their wilderness wanderings, right? He provided them with manna from (laughs) out of the heavens. He provided them with quail. He provided them um, with water from the the rock, literally. Um, And so it's this abundance out of these unsuspecting and, and strange and difficult places. But at the same time, this is that same word That describes the Lord back up in verse 4. The rock. And so I think there's a sort of a double entendre going on here that he suckled Israel out of his own provision, out of his own person. It was his own caring, nurturing um, person that uh, was providing for Israel. He is the source of the provision. He is the source of the care. And then you also look in, in verses 13 and 14. Just notice all of the things that they are being blessed with, um, the produce, honey, oil, curds, milk, the fat of lambs, finest of the wheat, drink the foaming wine from the blood of the grape, like every single kind of physical blessing. The Lord was saying, here it is, here it is. And so you have this picture of the Lord um, bringing up a child. And first off, Sort of forming him and creating him and making him, and then he's just this little infant, and he and he's suckling him out of the rock, and he's causing, he's um, bringing him along and causing him to grow and to mature, and he's just pouring out his blessings upon this child with everything that could ever be wanted, and so we see God's just abundant goodness, his love, his tender mercies, all of this, um, and verses. 8 through 14. And that makes what comes next even more awful, even more horrendous, is that in the midst of God's goodness and his care and his love and his kindness, right? Like, the only reason why God created the heavens and the earth, if you've thought about that, is why would a God who needs nothing create the world? The only option is that he wants to pour out and share his love with creatures. He has such an abundance of joy and love and glory that he's just going to create a world and say, Here's my love. And he did the same with Israel. He says, The world is, you know, uh, gone its way, but I'm going to create a people to pour out my love upon them. And then ideally, so that way they would also mediate those blessings to the nations as well. God is still interested in caring for the world and his people. And in the midst of that, now we get to verses 15 through 18, which is Israel's rebellion, even after everything that God has done. First off, notice verse 15. But Jeshurun, that, that's a word, it's a name that comes uh, from the word that means upright. And so it's kind of a play on words because it's used in ironic contexts when Israel is not being upright. And so it's kind of a poke and saying, but upright, you know, Mr. Upright uh, did this or that. And so this is convicting as well. So let's read through it, 15 through 18. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek, Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. I mean, you look at all the actions that Israel does here. Kicked, forsook, scoffed at, stirred him to jealousy, provoked, sacrificed to demons, unmindful of the rock. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Does this not just break your heart? And there is something that is desperately wrong here. God says in Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There is something wrong here. And (laughs) this week, this this really convicted me, but I I want to ask you this. Do you not see your own sin in this as well? This doesn't just condemn Israel. It condemns all of us. That we would kick against the one who raised us. That we would scoff him, the rock of our salvation. We scoff him, we mock him. And we may not sacrifice to demons. We give our time, our energy, our money to all sorts of things other than God. We are unmindful of the rock that bore us. And we often forget the God who gave us birth. God is just, and we are not. God is just, and we are not. And so we've seen the evidence. God put forth his love and his care. Israel was unique to God. He had this motherly, this tender care for Israel. And Israel rebelled. Just just imagine verse 15 for a second. He grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. It's as if um, you've got this young calf who uh, is growing and maturing and then one day says, nope, I'm out of here. And you can imagine him just like kicking like a wild animal um, away from, from the mother. This is rebellion and this is sin. And so we ask, well, then what, what, what next? What is appropriate after this? We've seen God's goodness and we've seen uh, mankind's sinfulness. What is appropriate at this point? There is only one thing, judgment. If God is a just judge, he must punish sin. If he did not judge sin, he would not be a just God. And that's exactly what we get into. We have the appropriate judgment that comes And we see this in verses 19, really all the way through verse 33. His appropriate judgment. So notice it says, the Lord saw it. Saw what? The rebellion. The sinfulness. And he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, and this is heartbreaking. Think about just how much care he had given to Israel. Think about how much care he has given to you in creating you, forming you, um, raising you up, pouring out his love. And now he says in verse 20, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. I'll stop here for a moment. Notice the parallelism between, um, there's four lines here. And um, the first line parallels the third line. And the second parallels the fourth line but they have made me jealous with what is no God. And then, so notice what God is going to do. I will make them jealous with those who are no people. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. I'm going to provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, what's really interesting is um, Paul picks this up in, in Romans, in Romans 10. Uh, so if you would, we'll digress a little bit, but what we're seeing is how this gets worked out in history. How, what, is, what did God do? how did he provoke them with a foolish nation how did he make them jealous with a uh with those who are no people and so if you would turn to romans uh 10 and we'll start here in uh uh verse uh 18 i i suppose <clears throat> romans 10:18 because in romans 10 or uh, 9 through 11 paul is answering the question, what about Israel? Because at that point, right, most of the Jews had not uh, obeyed. Most of the Jews rejected the Messiah. Uh, A few did not reject him and accepted him, but uh, for the most part. And that raises questions about, well, what's going to happen to God's people? Like we've been looking at how loving God was to this people, how unique Israel was to God. So what what about them? And if God abandoned them, what's he going to do with us? Um, but the message of Romans 9-11 through 11 is God's not done with Israel, and so he's faithful to them, and he's faithful to you. You can, you can bank on this. But anyways, but it raises questions. So verse 18, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those, whom are, or, those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And it's going to be the same, whether it's Israel, that statement is the same for Israel, and it's the same for everyone who does not accept the Lord Jesus Christ. They are a disobedient and contrary people that the Lord is saying, come to me, come to me, and they would not. And then so he goes into uh, chapter 11 with a question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? We would expect, well, yeah, they sinned like crazy. God's done with them. He says, by no means, for I'm an Israelite, right? And he goes through all that. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Jump down to verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And it describes it. So jump down to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Yes, because they sinned so terribly. No, by no means. Rather, through their trespass. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Notice what it says here. So as to make Israel jealous. Their sinfulness, their rebellion has led to the gospel going forth to all of us. And the hope, the goal is that, (laughs) because remember, Israel is unique to the Lord. And now they're seeing God work across the nations, across the world. And he's drawing to himself a people. And the hope is that should make them jealous. Now, verse 12, Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, right? We are all experiencing this richness because we have experienced the truth of the gospel. Now, if that means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as... then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow, what? To make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead, he's talking resurrection here. And so he's looking forward to the day when Israel comes to the Lord, repents, and now we get to experience the, the resurrection of the dead, this final um, the, the final uh, events of, of history, when they accept, and we jump down then, and he gives a warning, don't be arrogant towards, um, to, the, to the olive uh, shoots, right? Because they were broken in and you were grafted in. So he gives them a warning there. Uh, but then notice in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And then notice you've got a time word there. Until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, he's still referring to Israel. And he ends by saying, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God is thinking long-term. The gospel is going forth to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. And once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, we have seen that that hardening will be removed. And in this way, all Israel will will be saved. And so I look forward to that day because it also means life from the dead, right? So we look forward uh, to that day. But again, this is amazing. Jump back to Deuteronomy. This is in the midst of judgment. So he has said, they provoked me, they made me jealous, I'm going to make them jealous. But even in this judgment... Even in his judgment, he has a compassionate purpose in it. Even his discipline is meant to call them to himself. So he goes on uh, in verse uh, 22, back in Deuteronomy 32. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Verse 23, And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them. Now, is is all of this just God's vindictiveness and he's just really angry and upset and so he's just being mean and sending all these things upon Israel? No. What are these things? These are the specific curses that were found earlier. These are the covenant curses. They said, we will obey all the words of this covenant. And God says, I don't think you're up to the task, right? But these were the curses that were listed. He says, you've sinned. You've, <laughs> you've agreed to this, right? Here are the curses. Come back to me. And we looked at, whenever we looked at the curses, again, we saw that the discipline of the Lord was meant to bring us to repentance. And so we have the covenant curses all through this. But even though it's meant to bring Israel back, it is not pleasant. And people are going to die in the midst of it. It is not good to be under the the punishment or the discipline. Well, it's not pleasant to be be under the discipline of the Lord. Verse 25. Outdoors their sword shall bereave, and indoors terror for young man and woman alike. The nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Right? It's just going to be awful. It's going to be awful. And then we see just some restraint. We see God saying, but I won't destroy them completely. Notice verse 26. I would have said, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Right? Isn't that what they deserve? Isn't that what all of us deserve? Just to be wiped out. You've sinned against the rock who bore you. You're done. But God says, I would have done that. I would have been right in doing that. I would have been just and right. But he says, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. What is God concerned about? He is concerned about his glory among the nations, his glory in this world. This is God's restraint. He will receive his glory. You can imagine back in um, Exodus after the sin of the golden calf, right? Moses goes up to the mountain and intercedes for the people. And do you remember what kind of was his, the content of his intercession? It was don't don't destroy them cuz God was going to say or God said, "Look, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and restart with you." Right? And Moses says, "Don't do that because who's watching? The Egyptians. They will say the Lord brought them out just to wipe them out and destroy them." Right? His glory would be demeaned. And so God or, or Moses says, "Don't do that for your name's sake have mercy on them." It's the same here or we have something similar here where God is saying I would have done that, but I made a promise. I made a covenant to you. I was faithful. I'm going to be faithful to this. I'm going to receive glory by protecting you, by disciplining you, to bringing you back. That's that's incredible. And then he goes on here, um, and and now uh, this is another one of the sort of interpretive decisions. But um, in verses 28 through 30, is he referring to Israel, or is he ter- uh, referring to sort of these nations that would be coming against them. I believe it's Israel. Uh, and so what that means is in 28, 29, and 30, he's giving the reason for why he would be just in giving them all of these covenant curses. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them, right? If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end, Right? If they had just an inkling of wisdom, they would recognize judgment is coming, turn now. And we can say the same thing to those in this world. If they have wisdom, look at the judgment that is coming. God is just, sin will be dealt with. There is judgment coming. Be wise, turn now, repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They would discern their latter end. And then he goes into verse 30. Like, I mean, it's completely senseless that these Israelites would not understand that God is judging them. And we are just as foolish. But how could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? He's saying, Israel, recognize that this is the Divine intervention of the Lord. Because one person can't make a thousand of you flee. Two people can't make 10,000 of you flee. This is obviously the Lord giving you up. This is obviously the rock saying, here's judgment. And notice it goes on to explain this and it refers to their gods for their rock. And I think now it's referring to the nations that are going to be, you know, uh, attacking them for their rock. If you have the ESV, that's lowercase, right? For their rock is not as our rock, right? Their rock, as in their gods, the things that they put their trust in, that's nothing, right? That is not like our rock. And now we have another one of those really difficult uh, textual decisions here. Uh, Our enemies are, ESV says, are by themselves, Um, which if you've got the NSAB, I think you've got something like, uh, and, and they judge this or they see this. Um, it seems like our enemies recognize this, right? For their rock is not as our rock. Even, you could, you could add, even our enemies know this. Even our enemies recognize this, right? And you can see this play out in the book of Daniel, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, they all recognize the uniqueness of the Lord. Even before they're, you know, fully repentant, they see that Man, this is, a, this is a real, this is the real deal kind of God, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's what's going on here. Is even your enemies recognize this, but you don't. And then it goes on in 32 and 33 to describe the corruption of the sort of the judging nation, the nation that God is using to judge them. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. They're grapes, so, <laughs> so their source is bad. And then notice their fruits are bad. Their grapes are grapes of poison and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. So God has appropriate judgment upon Israel. And we can say he's got appropriate judgment for us in store as well. And after we see that, we think what hope is there. But thankfully the song keeps going for there is hope yet to come. And we see this hope really until 42. So from 34 to 42, that there is still hope yet to come. And we read, Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Okay, so, Again, one of the things here is, who is he talking about? And I think he's talking here about the nation that was judging Israel, the nation that was coming against Israel. Because notice the support for this in verse 36. So even though God is using this foolish nation, or this this nation to come against Israel to judge them, and we see that all throughout the prophets, um, yet he's going to judge them as well. Their doom will come. Their end will come swiftly. Because notice what happens in verse 36. Why? Is he going to judge that other uh, nation and, and those other people who are carrying out the Lord's discipline and judgment? For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, after all of this discipline that the Lord pours out upon Israel, when their power is just utterly wiped out, he will turn and have compassion on them and vindicate them, judge on behalf of them, against these other nations when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Now you would expect that after a statement of that, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants, um, that what follows would be how that compassion is brought about, right? So if he just made a statement, I'm going to have compassion on them. Well, here's how I'm going to have compassion on them. And I think that's right. But as you read through it, you might be thinking, well, how is this compassion? Um, But I think we do see the content of God's compassion in 37 and following. So let's read it. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, right? Who, Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. So let's stop there for a second. I think this is the first aspect of his compassion. Compassion, first off, confronts sin. Compassion reveals the uselessness of their idols, those things that they put their trust in. Right? How is God's compassion brought to Israel? First off, they have to recognize that their idols are useless. Their idols can do nothing. And this is what how God's compassion comes to us in salvation too, right? First, we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to say everything that I have put my trust in thus far is completely useless. That's how this compassion comes to. But Remember, this compassion doesn't stop there with a recognition. Everything I've put my trust in is useless. It moves forward. We must put our trust in something. And so we see God's compassion more in 39 and following. He says, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Here, he's calling them to recognize the supremacy of the Lord and to depend on him and him alone. It's a call to trust in the Lord. It's a call to trust in the rock. So first, you have to realize everything you've put your trust in thus far is useless. And then you turn and you put your trust in the rock, the only true rock. God's discipline was to draw them to the end of themselves so that they would turn and look to the true lo- to the true rock the lord he continues on verse 40 for i lift up my hand to heaven and swear as i live forever if i sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment i will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me So that would go to unrepentant Israelites and that would go to all the nations who are judging Israel, who, again, do not recognize the supremacy of the Lord. 42 gives us a uh, very stark, well, very moving imagery of this. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. It's as if his arrows and his swords are having a feast. They are feasting on this. God is a God of judgment. He will judge sin. But then we end the song with a call to rejoice. Because what we've seen is just how pitiful and useless are these idols. And we've seen just how amazing and unique and holy is this God. And we read in verse 43, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. And notice there's reasons why. For, right? Why should we rejoice with him? For he avenges the blood of his, serv- of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. And I think by cleansing the people's land, this is more than just you know, taking out some Windex or something. right? This is dealing with sin in the midst of the land. He's cleansing his people's land. And so the, the assumption is that it's also the people who are in the land that are being cleansed as well. So notice what's going on here. He's to be uh, praised because he avenges the blood of his children. This This is encouraging because there are a lot of wrong things that happen to people, and especially to believers, and especially because of the name. But God says, I will avenge those things. He does not let sin go unpunished forever. Either your sin is dealt with in Christ or it's dealt with in eternity under the wrath of God. And he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. He does offer cleansing. He does offer atonement. He does offer forgiveness as well. And so this song is a witness against Israel. It's a testimony to God's righteousness, a testimony to his justice. It's also a testimony to Israel's wickedness and therefore also our wickedness because we see ourselves in that. So it, it is that, but it's not only to condemn. It's not only to condemn. Notice in 44 through 46 here how Moses finishes this. So Moses came and recited all the words of the song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, He said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. First off, this is a warning. This is God saying, Look, this is what will happen. But if you turn, if you repent here and now, it won't happen, right? So even this song is the mercy of God to his people saying, Look what's coming ahead, turn now. Take heart, it's a warning so that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And so it is a warning uh, for, for the faithful, right? It's a warning for those who actually uh, are, are sensitive to the Lord. It's a warning that says, put your faith and trust in this rock. Let him be your rock. But for those who sin and rebel, it's a witness against them. God is just when he punishes. God is just when he brings cursing upon them. He is just when he punishes them. So may this be a call to those of you who are believers to let the Lord be your rock. And not just the rock over there, but the rock that you constantly flee to and hide in. And then if you're an unbeliever, let this be a warning. Be a witness against you and turn to Christ here and now. Trust him now. Today is the day of salvation. He offers himself freely to you. His blood atones for all who trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Father, we ask that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes and may your spirit Use these words to spur us on to greater holiness, to greater faith, and trust and dependence. In you, our rock, may we flee to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.